you know, in my in my journalism, I spent the first years talking mainly to climatologists, and then I it was when I stumbled into geography and behavioral sciences that I went, oh my god. Climate is not the only thing changing, and uh, the issues we face won't be resolved without social and behavioral, political realities changing as well. And that's these are all embedded in these essays. So I'd love to, Rebecca, I'd love to have you start and just tell the, uh, the audience a little bit about how this came to be. You know, what you, you're a wonderful essayist and writer and historian, and here you you and Thelma have gathered uh, quite a uh, an ensemble. How, how did this come about? What's the goal? Uh, Thelma and I got together uh, virtually because she's based in Fiji and I'm based in San Francisco to see what we could do in response to a lot of the climate grief, despair, anxiety, doomism, particularly when it's based on bad frameworks about the nature of power, the nature of change, and bad facts. And so many people think we don't have the solutions. We don't know what to do. Nobody cares. It's too late. Thus the name, not too late, that Thelma pulled out of one of our conversations. And then a year ago, we decided to turn it into a book and pushed hard and went fast and asked the 20 most amazing people we could think of to cover many aspects of the situation, scientists, organizers, policy people like Leah Stokes, um, you know, people with a sort of lyrical vision and um, brought them together. Everybody said yes to our amazement and we put this book out and uh, you're using it as a platform to continue doing the work of telling people it's, you know, both that it's not too late to, you know, both to assuage the kind of emotional stuff, because we're nice people, we don't want uh, undue misery, but also we really see the project as building a, a kind of on-ramp to climate engagement and climate action. We know the principal problem we face right now with climate is political, and that it will only be solved by civil society movements becoming as powerful as the vested interests. And so this is a tool uh, really kind of a toolkit we're trying to hand people to understand the problem, to understand the nature of change in power, to feel empowered and connected and to take action. Um, Ed, I'm going to get to you in a second, but I wanted to also mention uh, Jacqueline Gill, um, who's coming on in a bit too, um, who I've known for quite a long time. And now I'm, I live in the same region she is in here in what um, Babanaki territory in Maine. She has been pummeled of late by people who've gotten so locked into the doom frame that that they've become the enemy of progress uh, if in many ways as i wouldn't make a comparison as much as more than who knows what that means but uh, in her social media she's just been um, attacked relentlessly from this part of the landscape is that part of the motivation too like to, is there any way to jog someone out of that mode is that a question for me or for Ed? Oh, for you, and then we'll get to Ed. Yeah, I, I saw a really interesting uh, graph, and I have to say that caring about climate has turned into spending more time with graphs than ever before in my life. But a graph showing how similar doomism and denial are, because both of them say, well, one of them says there's nothing we can do. The other one says there's nothing we need to do. And, you know, they're both they're sort of equally wrong. And so... But at the same time, I think the real problem isn't climate denialism 
um, it was a, it was much more a problem a while ago. The real problem now is that large numbers of people believe climate change is real, but they're not actually um, figuring out what to do about it. The fossil fuel industries tried to convince them all we've got is personal virtue, you know, go vegan, ride a bike, don't fly, et cetera. And those things are very nice. But what we actually need is collective uh, action to do things like dismantle the fossil fuel industry. The fossil fuel industry doesn't really want us to think about for some reason. So, yeah, there's a there's a and, and it's fascinating to me. There are problems where the more you know about it, the scarier it is. But what has been really interesting about climate and Ed can speak to this as uh, an expert where I'm an amateur, is that the more people know about it, the less defeatist they are. And, you know, the climate scientists I talk to take this incredibly seriously, but they're not despondent overall. You know, it's a terrible problem. There will be devastation no matter what. But in this decade of decision, we really get to decide a lot of how bad it will be by how much we do or don't do which is why civil society engagement as movements, as voters, as informed people, um, as activists is absolutely urgent. Yeah. So, Ed, you, you're you're part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which I began reporting on when the year it was chartered, 1988. <laughs> and um, they've been criticized for being too cautious sometimes, but of late, the reports clearly make a pretty tough picture. Uh, and yet your essay in the book gets at this, uh, again, the action points. Um, one thing that you point out that I've been writing about a long time is that climate vulnerability is a huge driver of harm and loss. You have the hazard, which is the storm, the flood, the fire, but then you have the exposure, how many people, how much stuff, right. and vulnerability is, are those people resilient or not? And what are the causes of that? Many times they're not a function of climate change. They're a function of social right. marginalization, you know, inequity, all the forces that have made people vulnerable to many things, ill health, et cetera. So do you feel that that landscape has changed now? The IPCC used to be mainly People would turn to it for what's a greenhouse gas, you know, climate is changing because of CO2, methane, blah, blah, blah. And, and now there's this much bigger, I think, voice from scientists looking at, at that landscape on the ground. Yeah, I think that's actually been uh, a tremendous growth really over the last, I'd say, 15 or so years. I mean, if you trace the history, for example, of how we talk about adaptation, we didn't talk about adaptation much in the 1990s. It was sort of politically untenable to do so because we were giving up on mitigation. But what you've seen over time is exactly kind of what you're tracing to an extent what Rebecca is talking about, right? Which is, you know, adaptation starts off with we have to protect what we have from this external threat. But that framing removes all questioning of what do we have? Do we want that thing? And over time, I think what we've started to trace out is, wait a second, it's not climate change by itself as the problem. It's the way that climate change lands on the structures in which we live. And that's why it impacts different people differently. And that's why we actually have to pay a lot of attention to what we mean by adaptation, what we mean by resilience, because it really, we, we need to get into questions of who's resilience, what is resilient, and what are you resilient to? Turns out if you ask people that question, even at the scale of, say, a village, which is kind of the big scale that I work at, um, you're going to get variable answers. You're going to get variable answers inside a household. 
And I think that if we're going to get toward anything that resembles a just and sustainable future, it is taking on this evolved understanding of climate vulnerability, which is structural and underlying and not totally individualized, as Rebecca points out. We have to look at some of these much larger structures. And then in understanding that, we can understand what the implications of different kinds of climate change manifestations are. So yeah, there's been a big shift that's gone on over time. And I think the Working Group 2 contribution, especially of AR6, really pushed this point. Rebecca, one thing I've wondered about the climate movement, per se, is there's been such a focus for a long time, just as Ed was saying, international diplomacy followed the same pattern, decarbonization being the priority. In the movement, there's so much focus on the source of CO2, fossil fuels, that I feel quite often and as a reporter, I, I haven't seen enough of a focus on these drivers of loss and harm that are on the ground uh, all around us that also have culpability. There's accountability issues all around, but they're not really part of what you hear from 350 or my, and all my fr friends of mine for, for, forever. Uh, is, that, is that a problem or is, it, does that, is that a flawed uh, sense or what do you think? And what do you mean by drivers of harm other than, you know, the fossil fuel industry? Race, uh, redlining. Um, you, you mean like redlining of neighborhoods? Yeah, which put people in in more heat prone yeah. areas. Prone yeah. Area. I think that the climate movement is pretty intersectional. There's a climate justice movement talking about racism. I know, you know, I remember Hop Hopkins at the Sierra Club saying several years ago, so memorably, there is no fossil fuel extraction without racism because it all happens on the land of people who are deemed to be disposable. You know, in this country, mostly poor people, mostly of color, people um, in Africa, people, you know, people in the rainforests of Ecuador have been terribly impacted and so forth. And so I don't see those things missing. I do think you know, I'm on the board of Oil Change International, among other things, that the fossil fuel industry is kind of enemy number one to go after. And transitioning away from a fossil fuel economy is not the only thing we need to do. I think everybody acknowledges that uh, agriculture and, you know, infrastructure, transportation, you know, that there's so much that's going to be about design and changing systems. But going hard and fast after the fossil fuel industry seems to me to be eminently earth, eminently worthwhile. Yeah. Although, well, let me just bring up an example again from the time I've spent in developing countries to um, Bangladesh. There's a proposal. There's, there was World Bank money that was poised for um, revamping a fertilizer factory so that it has three times as much production from the amount of natural gas it's using for fertilizer. And the activists that were in Washington protesting the World Bank were saying that should that should stop. And to me, not just to me, but to the people in Bangladesh who uh, want affordable food, um, getting three times as much fertilizer out of the same natural gas amount feels like real progress, as opposed to saying no fossil fuels anywhere. And that, so that's kind of the same question, there's an energy justice clamor that I've heard uh, that gets lost in the the way some climate campaigns are framed, at least in my mind. 
I mean, there's so many climate groups now. I can't, I don't know which ones are doing what when it comes to things like that. One aphorism I come back to again and again and again that's never been more useful is the perfect is the enemy of the good. And you get these weird uh, frameworks. And one thing that we're seeing a lot is that people have decided extraction is bad. And now, and I think fossil fuel industry propaganda might be behind it, they're tending to reject renewables because there's extraction involved, even though one recent study said a fully renewable economy would use involve about a 500th as much extraction as a fossil fuel-driven economy. Um, but if you decide all extraction is bad, you can't go after the materials for building turbines and uh, you know wind turbines and solar panels, et cetera. And so you always have short-sighted people. Um, you always have confusing people. I mean, I think the last time I got vegan suggesting that it's all, you know, it's all food related was yesterday. <laughs> uh, or, or, or like, like food is the leading or, or meat is the leading cause and problem. You know, I got somebody throwing the old cowspiracy um, stuff at me. And so, you know, I can't take responsibility for everybody out there. There are plenty yeah. of wingnuts, confused people, saboteurs, um, Puritans and perfectionists and tools of the fossil fuel industry. I think the climate movement as a whole has been pretty realistic and also realistic that the global north historically has created the huge problem. And right now there's a fascinating statistic in contrary to the kind of virtue focused idea that we're all equally guilty that the top one percent of people on earth although i hate the top bottom thing they're not higher than us they're just richer than us the richest one percent of human beings have a bigger climate impact than the poorest 50 percent of human beings as far as i'm concerned most people in bangladesh can do pretty much anything they want right now the u you know and as a person in the u.s i'm not really in a position to tell them not to do it uh in a lot of ways you know, so I think that supporting countries to, you know, um, the global south and the poor countries to sustainable development is great. But trying to stop their stuff is like, you know, picky, picking on things that are not the main problem. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. And Ed, I know as it's development, a big chunk of your chapter was on harmonizing sustainable development, climate concerns and societal uh, decisions. Is there a, one of the problems with trying to do that that I've found is, is it's a systems problem. So it's got many dimensions. So how do you, I, I know in the IPCC report, you had a nice diagram, nice but very complicated diagrams, flowcharts showing how those things intersect and what do you do. But on the ground, again, as you were saying, you talked to people at the village scale and at national scale, you know, what do you, how do you drive forward harmonizing the need for fertilizer, the need for cutting carbon, the need for economic growth? How does that work? You know, what's, what's a good way to frame it? Well, I think that a lot of it has to do, and this is going to sound very academic -y, I think, but it has a lot to do with evidence and actually getting evidence as opposed to going with um, absolute notions of how things ought to work that are driven maybe a little bit more by ideology. And so the point that's been raised here, um, I work in mostly in Sub-Saharan Africa, mostly in West Africa. The amount of mitigation you can get off of farms in West Africa is pretty tiny. I mean, could we get some? I suppose we could. 
Is that actually a good use of anyone's time, energy, or money? No, not right now. Same thing really with their energy systems. But that said, you certainly can talk to a country and say, you know, 50 years from now, you're going to hope to be at this level of income, this level of kind of productivity. However, they, you know, most policymakers think about economic productivity. And you can say to them, to do that's going to require a lot more energy than you're currently using. And you don't want to be in a place 50 years from now where you have to decarbonize your system. So how can we set up that pathway forward? How can we work together on a pathway forward that allows you to achieve what you want to in terms of the well-being of your people, but doesn't actually create the same costs that the global north created for everybody else? But you're right. This is a systems problem, and it's really challenging. It's a systems problem at the scale of a household, and it's a systems problem at a country level. And as Farhana Sultana, one of the contributors to this book and a colleague of mine in geography, really has eloquently pointed out, um, the structures of vulnerability that we see in the world are the same structures that produce the drivers of the climate challenge in the first place. These things are all deeply woven together. And so even addressing, I really just think that addressing the climate challenge in the end is a systems question. But there's a lot of hope in systems. There's a lot of complex ways in which things play out. And, you know, it is not all written. I, I will just say that our chapter, I was one of the lead authors of chapter 18 in Working Group 2. So we were the Climate Resilient Development Pathways. We were sort of the summary chapter that pulled it all together, supposedly. And one of the big messages from us was not that we had prescriptive ways of getting into a climate resilient future, but that these ways will emerge in complex, place-specific ways. And there are decisions you can make now that move you in better or worse directions. And one of the implications of those decisions you're making now is that that affects downstream decisions, right? So if you choose not to do things now, you'll be choosing to do a lot more later and it gets harder. If you choose to do things now, you can set yourself on a much better path. And even, you know, over time, even your bad path starts looking much better. So... I think that when you get into the evidence, you really get into how the world works. There's a lot to be, if not optimistic, at least positive thinking forward about opportunities. Yeah, and just expanding the arena of who's in the conversation, making sure people have full access to information at the global scale is, is important. And the, you know, the margin, getting rid of the idea of marginalization. Mm. Is, is a key to a lot of the chapters here and in, in this essay, essay collection. Uh, Farhana has been on this show, extraordinary leader um, on this idea. Um, and, you know, this relates to something you were saying, Rebecca, what Ed was saying about the long trajectory, like for a country's development. In, your, in one of your essays in this collection, you talk about patience, essentially uh, the divestment campaign and being comfortable with the way things evolve from just getting people together, a, a standing rock, some of which you can't anticipate. There's sort of, there can be unplanned uh, adventures and coherence and things that grow out of just getting together. Could you talk about that a little bit before you have to go? Yeah. And something I find with Americans a lot um, is that they really don't, they're not comfortable with uncertainty. They often replace it with false certainty. We know what's going to happen. You know, that gives you the optimism that everything will be fine, the pessimism that um, everything is going to be terrible. Either way, it doesn't demand much of us. 
So, and that also is paired with impatience. You know, you really see people who think if we protest on Tuesday and the government doesn't fall to its knees and admit we were right on Wednesday, then we failed. And so much of my own life um, has been observing sometimes firsthand, sometimes as a, you know, historical writer and reader, uh, how change works. I was just in the Museum of American History and in 1834 and onward, these female anti-slavery societies were sewing pin cushions and aprons to sell at fairs to fund Frederick Douglass and other people's publications and speaking tours. And I know so many people would be like, you can't abolish slavery with pin cushions. And I'm fascinated by how things scale up, how things change. We just had that historic victory brought about um, by the law students of Vanuatu, the, um, the UN uh, universally approved a measure to ask the International Court of Justice to hold countries to their Paris agreements to, you know, to make them accountable in the way they never have been before. It took about four years from when students on Vanuatu, who could have said, oh, we're on this tiny island that's climate threatened, nobody's even heard of us, you know, where do, you know, how, so, so I've just seen so many examples of how things how things scale up, how they build, how they change. And also one of my favorite things that I write about in this book is indirect consequences. I mean, we did ultimately stop the KXL pipeline. It took about a dozen years. Lots of people told us we would never win all along the way. The way. I'll note, none of them came back and apologized. They never mm -hmm. do. But also, what did that campaign do? It stopped one pipeline, but it inspired lots of other people to fight lots of other pipeline battles. It educated a ton of people, including me, about the tar sands and the, the role pipelines play in making fossil fuel cheaper than shipping it other ways and what you can do with a point of vulnerability like a pipeline. Um, it created solidarity between native and non-native people in Nebraska with bold, bold Nebraska. And, and every good movement has so many indirect consequences. Standing Rock inspired Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to run for Congress, where she would then introduce the Green New Deal, which hasn't passed, but became enormously influential. I find that stuff fascinating, but you have to think in the long term. I, I wrote a piece for The Guardian last fall where I said I'm a tortoise at a mayfly party. You know, I feel like I'm sort of lumbering along thinking in 5, 10, 20, 50 years, uh, you know, time frames constantly dealing with people who can't remember what happened last week and, you know, the long time frame. I think amnesia creates uh, despair and memory creates hope. And partly because because memory is how you understand how change works and that it's going to be slow. It's often going to be indirect. It's going to be unpredictable. And yet again and again and again, grassroots movements civil society uprisings, and, you know, small cohorts have brought about most of the best changes of the last 200 years and more. And, and so, maybe I'll just jump in to say, like, Rebecca has talked about and used the phrase, like, cathedral thinking, which I find perfect, actually, for what's in front of us. And it really does align, and Rebecca, we should have had you, like, edit our chapter, it would have been a much more <laughs> deliverable next time, next time. <laughs> because that's what chapter 18 talking about climate resilient development pathways that's what we were talking about it's there isn't a pathway that we execute and 10 years from now um, we've solved the problem 
that, that, that's not how any of this works. We need to make decisions now. They will not be perfect decisions. We will do the best we can now. We will then see how those play out. We'll hopefully we will evaluate, learn, all that kind of stuff. Then we're gonna to have to make new decisions. And then we'll make new decisions. And sooner or later, because this will not end in 10, 20, or bluntly 100 years, we have a lot of work to do. At some point, my generation hands off to another generation that brings up. And that generation probably hands off to another generation. So just, just as they built the medieval cathedrals, we will be building solutions to this challenge over generations. And if we understand it that way, I think it gets to a lot of the things that Rebecca is pointing to that we need to be worried about, right? That if we haven't fixed it tomorrow, we don't fix it at all. That's simply not the case. And if we, but, I, but if we give up on it tomorrow, yeah, then we're in big trouble. So how do you, uh, Ed, you teach, right? So you're dealing with the next generations. Um, I, I haven't been in classrooms lately, but I, I, I get some students on my show. Um, how do you, it's easy for us. We're, I mean, I'm probably the oldest person here, I'm sure. Um, but how do we um, converse with young, impatient people in ways that either isn't finger waggy or really can carry through uh, sort of a co-learning around this? Actually, you know, Christy Ebai, a climate and health IPCC author at University of Washington, she told me on uh, one, one, one webcast, she said, you know, she said at a time, it was like many years ago, everyone born since then has born is born with no sense of a normal summer. In other words, climate has changed. They're born into climate change in a way. And that generation, she says, has the capacity to develop a normal new language around these things that we are just not able to figure out. So so how do you how do we do that? How do we cross those generations? Rebecca, again, before you go, maybe you if you have to, yeah, you got to get off in, in like two minutes. So from you first and then Ed back. Okay. Well, I have to say Ed had the foresight to build in an in-house teenage uh, expert. <laughs> <laughs> he has a daughter who's six, I think 16. Yep. I feel like it has to be a two-way conversation and young people hate being patronized and told how things are. And um, they have a lot, you know, that we definitely know. We definitely have things to tell them. We definitely have things to learn from them. And one of the things I hope to do, at, you know, when the sort of frenzy of book tour winds down is just spend more time listening to where is some, what are the things that are inspiring despair and defeatism in the young? Where are their sources of information coming from? You know, how do we understand who this enemy is so we can fight it more intelligently? And young people also can are also in some ways embodying the best changes of our time. You know, they're attitudes around justice, around equality, around fairness. They're like, you know, young people are also always passionate idealists, but I feel in a way we're in a vast cultural transition and some of us are kind of abandoning what we grew up in, growing up in more misogynist, homophobic, unequal, you know, isolationist societies. Young people have already been born into the better world that feminism and some, uh, you know, anti-racism or more multicultural America for this country has created. So I think that just, you know, mutual exchange is the foundation always and intergenerationality. I've been very influenced by somebody saying years ago that generational segregation is one of the worst forms of segregation in this country. And I try and mix it up with who I talk to from people in their nineties to you know, people in their single digits. That's 
great advice for sure. We should get third act, Bill McKibben's group together with uh, the uh, the next generation. Maybe I'll do that. On oh, oh we're, yeah, I'm, 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 I've got to go now, yeah. but thank you so much. Thanks, Rebecca. And I'm showing there's a teaching, there's a, there's a te teaching guide or a curriculum there guide is. The book as well. Yeah, no, we created a study guide. We hope high schools and colleges will use. The book is straightforward and accessible and cheap really designed um, for for young people for uses and for everybody but to not be off-putting and dense and you know too heavy to put in your backpack for young people right so and with that thank you and Thanks again to be continued yes come back sometime so ed we're going to keep going here if it's okay um yeah uh, and i think jacqueline gill and um selma are going to join us uh, too uh, right. so again you know teaching this this issue of the next generation how do you find ways to get over those humps well uh, so one of the things is as you as you get older and uh, you you've been doing this since i've been teaching in colleges now for 25 years actually and uh, i've seen an arc across 25 years um, i tell people all the time in my previous institution at the university of south carolina um, when i was teaching i had to explain to people what climate change was, why they should care about it. At that point, the students would freak out and want to know what the heck we were doing about it. And then we would have that conversation. And what's changed is uh, I don't need to have that initial conversation anymore. And it's kind of like what you were saying before. There's a generation of students coming through universities, and it's been true for several years now, where there's never been a world where we weren't talking about climate change and where climate change wasn't necessarily, I mean, background is like pushed as maybe the central challenge they face. So I think one part of this is just simply recognizing that you don't need to go back and walk people through the question all the way from the beginning. They're already there. You do need to assess what they know, where they got that information. This is something uh, Rebecca is really concerned about. And I know is a big motivator for this book um, because some students come in with pretty robust understandings. Others come in from you know, what they see on social media and one of the engines of social media that we know is, you know, outrage and fear drives clicks. And so the most extreme statements you can make about climate are great ways to drive a following. And you really do see a lot of folks who are convinced that if we haven't fixed this by 2030, we're all dead. Um, or that by 2030, if we haven't done it all, then there's no hope of fixing it. And there's just absolutely nothing written anywhere that says that, right? There, there is no data. There's no evidence, nothing behind that. There are statements that say, you know, if we haven't done certain things by 2030, 2035, it gets a lot harder and it gets a lot more expensive. Um, but that's a really different message. And so uh, Rebecca, Rebecca referenced, she and I have been doing a lot of talking lately. Um, yeah, I do have a 16-year-old daughter who actually is a great bellwether for me of this challenge because, you know, she's actually way smarter about social media than even I am, I think. She's quite critical and actually had kind of a hilarious moment. I was talking to some of my colleagues at Clark the other day about this, where she she will check in with me about stuff she sees on climate. Now, not everybody has an IPCC lead author in the house to do that with, but my daughter at least is using what she has. And she'll say, what the heck is this thing? Like, is this valid? Does this make any sense? And I'll explain if it does uh, or it doesn't. But the other day she was raging out about somebody firing off really extreme statements on uh, either Twitter, Instagram, something like that. And she said they were like, we have to act now or we're all doomed. She's like, and there wasn't even a link. And she was complaining about the lack of 
actionable information, but also like, where's your reference? I love that my 16 year old is ahead of the curve on this, wants to see a reference for any claims so that she can figure out what's going on. It's not often you get this. So actually, well, we, need more, we need more of her. Well, and I just, just close this off really quickly. I think that recognizing that there's a generation coming through right now that is very aware of this challenge, but also starting to take their own somewhat critical view of it and can be pointed toward a more constructive critical view of where we might go, as opposed to simply accepting really extreme narratives on one side or the other of this that lead us to unproductive places. Wow. Well, I'm thrilled to see my sort of neighbor by main standards, yeah. 40, or, 40 or 50 miles away, <laughs> uh, Jacqueline Gill, um, paleoecologist and uh, incredible writer and humanist at uh, University of Maine. Uh, who is also a contributor to this book and has been uh, really a leading light online through social media and other means of uh, getting people to re-examine hard-edged um, approaches to, 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 to life around climate. Uh, Jacqueline, first of all, how are you doing? It, it, you, yeah. Um, long I'm, journey. I'm doing well. It's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's like the second to last week of the semester before finals week. So I guess I should say well as, as well as can be expected under those circumstances. Um, and, you know, kind of related to some of the topics that we've been, you know, discussing, uh, you and I on the internet, and also I'm sure you and Ed, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging time when there's a, a, a mental health crisis going on, you know, amidst, uh, all of the things that we are dealing with. And so disentangling all of those things um, is, is definitely a challenge, um, I have to say, as a, as, a, as a professor who, you know, works with people in the sort of 17 to 25 year old range pretty frequently, you know, we, I think we feel this really acutely um, and, and have kind of felt that the shift, right, the shift in the, the energy that you have um, just in the last decade, um, in, in very positive ways in terms of the energy they bring to their activism, but also uh, really just having a close up and, and personal uh, experience of that despair, right? That can overwhelm uh, and contribute to that mental health crisis and emerges out of it. And it's, it's all bound up together. So. Yeah. Um, your, your chapter, your essay is, is so beautiful and it, it comes out of um, your experience in Siberia that also became a very life-challenging moment for you uh, physically, physiologically. Uh, can you describe a little bit how, I'll, I can show some of the text in, here in a moment, but just tell us how you came to um, find this broader theme as you were in a, in a hole in the peat in, in Siberia. Yeah, so I, um, I, I feel as though this, this, this sense of both loss and possibility threads through my experiences of working in the field as a, as a paleoecologist who is strongly motivated by the questions, you know, that are emerging in the present, right? It's sort of like having one foot in the future and one foot in the past. And, and while we live, while, while the rest of my body is sort of living through the now, right? Um, and so I, I start with this experience that I had um, in, the, in the permafrost where you know, I've, I've worked with fossil data throughout my career, um, both, you know, the, the actual bones, but then the smaller uh, microfossils that we pull out of the sediment to sort of use these forensic tools to recreate these past ecosystems. Um, but it was really this experience of 
seeing whole organisms that have been perfectly preserved with their skin and fur and teeth intact, every, you know, everything, it's not, it's not just a bone, you know, it's not just a sample, it's, it's an organism, it's an individual. And that was sort of a moment where, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in my mind with woolly mammoths, but it wasn't until that moment that woolly mammoths really became real for me, right, on, on a lot of levels. Um, un, unlike a lot of my colleagues, I never, I don't get to go outside and, and watch my study organisms interacting with their environments. It all has to happen within my imagination at, as, as that comes out of the data that we collect. And so that moment, it, it doesn't come out in the essay, but that moment for me is very deeply bound up with uh, my own near-death experience of uh, ending up in a Siberian ICU for a couple of weeks with, um, I had blood clots and, you know, DVTs in both of my legs and my lungs were almost completely blocked by pulmonary embolisms. Um, I almost died in the hospital. Uh, and then just the experience of being in a and basically sort of third world conditions where, you know, wonderful medical staff just had very little in the way of resources. Um, it was just a very strange experience. And it, and that happened on the last day that we were there in the field. We were also there filming a documentary um, for, for BBC and Discovery. And, and so for me, there's this, it's really hard to disentangle sort of my own resilience story with the story of these creatures that, you know, I, I've, I experienced when we descended sort of into this dark permafrost tunnel. And that included creatures like woolly rhinos and woolly mammoths that are no longer with us, but also horned larks and moths and bison and other animals that do still exist, that are still outside. Um, and just sort of having this moment of, you know, uh, you know, I, I, that was almost when I ceased to be right. And so mm. it's, 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 it's hard for me to disentangle that experience from uh, the, from the personal and the scientific in that moment for me, they're sort of bound up together, even though that, that didn't come out explicitly in the essay, but it certainly threads through the, the, the those emotions are, are threaded through and, and I'm really kind of pulling and drawing on, on those feelings, uh, when I, when I write about survival, when I write about resilience. Well, yeah, you know, what comes to mind too, as you're saying this is Rebecca earlier, she had to go jump onto an NPR interview. Nice. We, were, we were talking about sections she describes in, in her essays about moments she describes that relate to the importance of patience and, and letting mm -hmm. time do its work uh, in, in terms of movement building or yeah. She described the decade it took for the de 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 divestment movement to get to the point where it, it, it had effect. And, and AOC, you know, being at the standing rock in, in a car with people who then led her partially to her, her you know, being who she is today in Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, so that getting comfortable with long timescales, understanding that meaningful things don't always come immediately is one of the things we were talking about. And Ed, we were talking about how this relates to how you talk to students or how mm. young people, as you know, particularly you've been pummeled on social media, sometimes Jacqueline, by people who are very impatient and very brittle. Yeah. And, um, and and Ed already offered an answer for how, how, how we can build better interactions as older people mm -hmm. with a generation coming forward um, that has that sense of now, now, now. Does that come out of your writing and thinking? How, how do we, how does that work? <clears throat> I think 
you know, I think the, our, and, and I, I, I'd pull back for a moment and say, I think our sort of inability to understand our position within the greater arc of all of these different stories, I think is a, is a, is an unfortunate weakness of, you know, Western society, right? Which is a, a, you know, we're not a monolith, right? But there's a lot of commonalities there. And the reason that I make that specification is, you know, if I say we, then I'm ignoring a lot of other cultures that do actually have a, a pretty good sense of where they fall relative to the work of their ancestors and what they inherit and what they carry forward and thinking about future generations, right? A lot of indigenous cultures have, have held on to that ethic and that responsibility. And so, you know, for me, I, I came to the work understanding as a student or, or, or sort of having my understanding of the natural world kind of blown up by the realization that we're looking at a, sl a sliver of time within a longer time scale at which these ecological processes we're interested in are playing out. And, and that should inform our understanding of, of these ecosystems and also our conservation efforts. But I also, I think I just, maybe I came to paleo because my brain loves history or temporal thinking. Maybe I think that way because of paleo, I'm not really sure. But, you know, my first instinct is always to understand where we are at in this moment as, as part of an arc of history, right? What is, what is you know, I, I work at a public university, uh, public universities around the country are being defunded. Um, they know they're facing funding crises or they're under attack. I can't understand those processes unless I understand you know, decades of, of choices and actions that were taken that are, you know, bringing us to the present moment, right? Any historian is going to tell you the same thing. And so for me, where this comes out in terms of activism or engaging with um, especially youth activists, um, I, I think I often hear no one is doing anything, which is not true, right? Uh, it may be that it feels that way, um, and I think the media plays a role there um, mm -hmm. in terms of not being solutions oriented, not wanting to celebrate heroes. Um, uh, and when I say heroes, I don't mean individuals. I mean the groups, the communities that are winning. Right. Um, I only, you know, the 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 lawsuits, you know, that are being brought forth um, and won in some cases. Right. To prevent drilling operations or to hold uh, corporations accountable for climate harms. Right. We don't hear those stories. Um, and so, you know, I, I like to sort of, I think, you know, having started this work in the, you know, mid 2000s, that's not that long ago, but I've seen, I've seen successes, I've seen the growth of a movement, I've seen us go on Twitter from begging people to talk about climate at all, to suddenly blowing past solutions and, and landing in a place of, well, it's too late, we're just going to build our bunkers and plan for an apocalypse. And just watching that shift happen so fast within like a couple of years, right? Of going from no, no discussion at all to, to the it's too late framework. And, and so just from that sort of arc of, you know, 2005-ish to now, not even quite 20 years, um, you know, that the, the rise of a climate youth movement happened really quickly. You know, all of these things are, I think it's important to have that broader perspective, whether that's something you're learning from reading or you're learning from talking to elders or whatever it is, I think the energy and the drive and the demand for, uh, for change is, is, a, is good energy that can be leveraged to, to drive all kinds of positive change. Um, but I think it's easy to get bogged down in the feeling that 
well, if we don't have this immediate success, we should just give up. And that that's not how any movement has ever worked. If you And, and this is where I turn to the history of other movements, social justice movements. Um, you know, th those to me, that's where, you know, I can see, okay, well, how long did it take for, for these rights to be won or for these cases to be won in court or, you know, whatever, whatever it was to, to have the social change that's necessary, often with the legislation leading the social change. Um, you know, all of those perspectives, I think, are valuable. And I, I worry that we're losing that. I worry that the immediacy of social media and the uh, uh, the sort of narrow slice that, you know, we are, are sort of narrow understanding within a broader arc of, of these, these processes, these movements, I think that makes us feel isolated. I think that makes us feel like things aren't happening, um, especially if you're just recently waking up to this. Um, but this is where I think, you know, those of us who've been doing this a, a little bit longer have, have perspective that's valuable here. And uh, you know, for me, when I was starting to feel burnt out, I looked to the movement leaders who have been doing this work, um, you know, in climate and other movements for a very long time. And my first instinct was to see, well, what what can I learn from them about sustainability, about my long, my sustainability within this kind of work? Um, and I, I would just urge others sort of feeling stuck or lost, um, you know, to just take a moment and pull back and look at how much has changed, right? And how much, uh, how much capacity building has emerged in just the last few years. And before we just give up on that, <laughs> why don't we try, you know, using all that energy, using that capacity to, you know, it, it might take a few years, it might take a few decades, but the work is still worth it, right? Yeah. Like this is this is that that line I have in the essay, you know, about planting trees that we know will never shade us, right? That is. That is, you know, even if we don't live to see the end of this work, that doesn't mean that it's not worth it, right? Because imagine if our own ancestors had been such cowards, right? Imagine if they had given up on us, you know, and we didn't have the rights or the, the living conditions that, you know, that we have now because, you know, someone 100 or 200 years ago decided it wasn't worth fighting for because they, they weren't seeing the immediate returns. Right. Right. Ed, and that, that gets at the journey um, being more important than the destination in some ways. There is expectation. <laughs> destination. That was the motto of my very first college. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Where was that? I started at a small liberal arts school named Goddard College, which oh, sure. uh, which in Vermont, which closed its campus program when I was two years in, and that's how I ended up at another college campus. So, you know, um, you know, it's also uh, this reminds me so much of all the time I spent reporting on the climate treaty process. You know, back in the eighties and ninety two, when there was all this expectation of a a perfect instrument resulting, um, a binding contract essentially, ta targets and timetables. Oh. And then and by Paris, you know, from Copenhagen to Paris, 2009 through 2015, that model faded. A lot of environmental groups had built their whole push around targets and timetables, targets and timetables. Mm. And Paris, what was so cool about Paris is it, the destination was a journey. Paris mm. created a, a roadmap for the next 100 years with nationally determined contributions, not not a not a chart for how the uh, carbon police will will determine what countries do, and, and it, it, so it's kind of reflective of what you're saying here, more generally. And I, I th that 
and a lot of, you know, when I wrote about the Paris Agreement in the New York Times, I said, you know, so it's the ultimate success because it's sort of shaped around how human humanity works. You're building coherent, you're building cooperation, you're building collaboration, you're building sharing of, of goals and, um, but it's not binding, which is like, oh, you know, it, oh, shit, wouldn't it be nice if, if some top-down entity could just solve this for us with a, with a yeah. And so, so that's kind of like it feels similar to what you're talking about in the book, which is more not so focused on diplomacy, et cetera. Ed, you've been in that whole arena too. You know, the IPCC was chartered really to advise the framework convention parties uh, in a sense. So, so do, do you have the same sense that it, are people expecting a perfect IC, IPCC report someday? You know, AR seven, AR eight. Oh, finally, we'll get sea level. Finally, we'll figure out, you know, is that, is, I think there has been that expectation to a certain extent. Is that going away? And is that good? I mean, a, a perfect one. I don't know. I'll, by the way, I'm just going to start by saying I've actually never been on the same call as Jacqueline. So hi. It's actually hi. Oh, it's so great. instead yeah. of like social media. And I should also point out, I started out my career as an archaeologist. So I have almost the same affinities oh. that you're talking about, um, mm -hmm. which includes that long view, which I do totally agree kind of helps. Um, but to your question, Andy, about the IPCC, or for that matter, the policy arena, I mean, remember, the, the IPCC in the end, what is the AR really? It is the agreed set of facts upon which the climate negotiations rest. That's that's why it's negotiated the summary for policymakers, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so in that sense, uh, perfection isn't really the question, right? It, it's just are there facts people can agree to so when they start negotiating with each other over who's responsible for what at least we have that foundation to work from in that sense the ipcc is fine it, i think it basically does that i do think there is a real question though um and this is a question coming from i'm just gonna say from authors of the ipcc which is is a just a continuing repetition of the assessment reports mm -hmm. Uh, as they currently exist, is what is the value add of that really? And with the exception, I think, of informing baseline negotiations, uh, there's a real question to be had there. Um, and I will give you an example of like one of the challenges that pops up. I'm, I'm currently leading um, a report for the Board for International Food and Agricultural Development, BIFAD. BIFAD advises the U.S. Agency for International Development on food security matters. And this report is meant to help people think about what they should be working on in terms of food security and agricultural development under climate change. Well, we want to be evidence-based when we do this. We don't want to just make stuff up. Um, but if you go to the IPCC reports, which is a great place, great assessment of evidence, the IPCC reports are framed around global scale questions. So if you go to the chapter that addresses food security and other uh, products that we get from the environment, it's a really good chapter for understanding what we're looking at globally. Mm -hmm. There's almost no subglobal data in that chapter, and that's not the author's fault. I want to be very clear. This is about the way that chapter is framed. But that also means that from a policy and implementation perspective, that chapter is not helpful. You, you can't do anything with that because no one implements globally at all. There are no budgets that operate globally. This stuff happens at largest nationally and typically mm -hmm. smaller than that. And our data doesn't really align with the policy need, aside from, I would argue, like working group two is really good at pointing out we have a gigantic global challenge here, but the solution won't be global. 
the solution is going to be national or subnational. So we have a mismatch between the document we keep producing and the information people need to do anything about it. Yeah. How we bring those things together, uh, that is a really critical question. I'm not sure that's the IPCC's purview or if there's something yeah. else that has to be done, but I think that that's one of the critical questions that's emerging right now around this. Oh boy, and, and Jacqueline, uh, as, as a scientist, trying to be sure your work is informing relevant communities, you must think about this too. I've, I've been involved with the UN Disaster Risk Reduction Agency for now for many years as an advisor on some of their reports. And I like that they have eight regional um, hubs. They have regional hubs. Oh, Rebecca, Rebecca's back. How cool. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. I just couldn't resist a chance to see Jacqueline. And oh, great. Uh, we were just talking about what's needed as an interface between information and, and, and response in communities that need it most. And I was mentioning that the, uh, the UN Disaster Risk Reduction Agency has uh, regional hubs, regional hubs of South Asia, uh, uh, Americas, Caribbean. And that, if there were more investment in sort of those interfaces, and think about that at the, the US scale too, you, you know, what's needed now, there's money, right? There's, there's infrastructure money. There's clean energy money, but how do the people who need it most, meaning in communities that have been so marginalized that don't have access to decision makers, that requires interface. Like mm. whether they're people, whether they're in government or in NGOs, is it can be different questions. But and how do we build though that in, we there's that word again? How how is that infrastructure supported? So that universities or or the UN or whatever can get that that information where it's needed most feels like it's so important, which is why I'm glad that the book has a study guide, for example, you know. And then, but what's done to maximize the reach of that is something I think about a lot as a communicator. Jacqueline, well, I don't know what comes to mind for you? Well, and I don't have. I mean, I don't have answers in terms of you know the the how do we translate science to policy. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out with the local communities that I work with. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's an ongoing process. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of papers. Paleoecologists have spilled a lot of ink basically saying those of you who are working on global change problems should listen to us. We have some knowledge about the past that can be relevant here, but actually making those connections with the people who are making decisions on the ground is really challenging. Um, you know, the people who are managing a particular, you know, natural reserve or something, right? Like getting, getting to those people, that's, that's where, you know, we really, we, we need those on the ground relationships, but from a, a sort of broader, uh, communications, you know, just kind of climate conversation perspective, the, you know, 10 years ago, the number one, or maybe even five or eight years ago, the number one question that I would receive from people is, um, you know, is this really happening? Is, you know, how bad is it? Um, and now the, the question has shifted to what can I do? Right. Um, mm -hmm. And, and not, and, and there's been an evolution of what can I do? At first, it was the sort of usual individualistic solutions like, <clears throat> you know, what what can I do in my house, right? What what light bulbs can I switch out? Um, uh, what, which car is better, this one or this one? Uh, cloth or plastic diapers, right? Um, you know, what what's the best option from a consumerist perspective? And I think there's been a shift in thinking 
just in the last few years that, um, at least in, in terms of my observations of, of conversations and the questions that I get, have now shifted to what can I do because I am a small person and this is a bigger problem, right? This is bigger than me. What can I, what can I do? Uh, what can I possibly do? to push back against this tide, this, these, these, these huge forces, you know, as we start to identify that things like colonialism and capitalism are parts of the climate problem, then somehow the, the solutions become more abstract, right? Because when someone thinks it's a, it's, you know, if it's a consumerist problem, then that has easy solutions in that as long as you have access and the funds to be able to make certain purchases, you can choose this versus this, right? And that's, I think people are, are, are realizing that that's not the pathway out of this. Um, and so then the, then there's a, this, this feeling of overwhelm grows as the, uh, the sense of the inevitability, right. Of these larger forces, these larger social forces, um, you know, becomes people become more aware of that. And so as we start to see, what could I possibly do as one person? Um, I see, I see some people just sort of I don't want to say abrogating their responsibility, but I, I often see the refrain of, well, it's all capitalism and corporations, so just do what you want. You can't possibly make a difference. Mm-hmm. So eat meat right. because your diet doesn't really matter. Buy this because your diet, you know, because your purchases don't really matter against this larger force, as though we are not also participating, you know, within those broader systems. Um, and so there, that's, I think, part of it. And then the other part of it is, you know, uh, well, you know, just will I have a future? Will I will I grow up and get married? And is there a point in going to college? Right. And I, you know, when I hear that from young people, you know, I really worry that the messaging that, you know, our, our relentless focusing on the it's real, it's us, it's bad, <laughs> you know, right. without. And so what we need to do is X or Y, right? We're not we're not road mapping any futures, right, for people to see themselves a part of, like not just the future, but the process to get us there. Um, and so that's a that's a communications failure. Um, we have not shifted and, and adapted from the problem of, you know, a decade or two ago, which was convincing people that this is a thing and we need to be talking about it. We need to be raising awareness. Um, and so I even see that within, you know, I've I've had some disagreements with some activists who are still very much locked into that. We have to wake people up mode where people are just the, they're your neighbors. Right. It sort of feels yeah. like you're alone and crazy because no one else is with you in this awareness of climate um but not re- recognizing that when you wake people up you need to be giving them something to do you need to okay. be opening a door yeah. for them to walk through um and it's not as i said in a, t- a thread recently you know we have to be more interested in solutions than catharsis right just having that cathartic moment might feel very good but it doesn't build capacity it doesn't it doesn't get us you know through that door. Um, and yeah. we need to give people options. I have to offer something here that, cause it drives me crazy, this opportunity. And I think the media failed completely on this too, because we're just chasing clicks historically, uh, and not really focused on examining the moment and the moment right now with the infrastructure bill from November, 2021 and the inflation reduction act. Again, I'm going to get back to the resources that are there available. Uh, I did this conversation with, uh, um, several people, I was, I was not organizing it about the new communication challenge and opportunity. And it's not telling stories. It's, it's about providing people with information. And let me just get to really quickly, something that Jigger Shah, who runs this um, new white house 
He runs the Department of Energy program that has all these billions of dollars in loans available for your town to move to electric buses or to change your streetlights. And it's there. It's waiting. And what he says, let me see. I think you should be able to hear this. We have thousands, actually tens of thousands, who are already active on these issues. When you think about what this takes, we have 19,500 uh, organized cities and towns and communities in this country. That's it. 19,500. 14,500 of them have a population that's less than 5,000. Mm. Right? And so what this requires is sustained effort at the local level. Always. Right? When the transit authority makes the decision to replace old diesel buses with something else, they need to choose electric buses. And we have programs to pay for it. But if the transit agency doesn't apply for the program, it doesn't happen. And I can't force them to do it from the federal government. All I can do is say, here are all of the resources. But someone in the local community can force them to make a decision that's in their own best financial interest. The same thing's true with the way in which school buses are done. You know, only 50% of streetlights in this country are LED. We can replace all the rest of the streetlights with LED lights. It's like an eight-month payback, right? The amount of, of school rooftops that don't have solar on them when it's fully financeable and you save money from day one, right? I mean, what it takes is someone who actually is willing to spend a few extra hours every week to say, you know what, I want to make my community better. And the federal government's passed $1.2 trillion to support that. But we can't force it bottom, I mean, top down. That's not how our country works. Right. It's got to be forced at the local level with resources that we provide to that, you know, change maker and that muckraker. I mean, that just I, I, I play this for someone almost every week. And because it just shows you um, and what can I do as a communications person, you know, at Columbia or what can we all do at universities or through the project uh, not too late to give a whether it's a toolkit or um or the like, so that the person who is engaged knows that there are, it's not this massive climate crisis. There's now a massive opportunity. And by the way, that was that was just the infrastructure money. We had that, that interview. That was May of that was before the IRA bill. Before the so there's uh, it's just like that much more opportunity, and that could be nonpartisan. He said that you know like he said you know what he said there are more uh, red state police departments are buying Tesla's electric vehicles than blue states. So it's not red blue either, you know, because they're fast, right? And they know that they can chase someone down, whatever. I have all kinds of issues with police chases. That's a whole separate question, but you get the idea. The idea is that you can do stuff, you know, and, and get around some of these barriers. But and then that builds outward, you know, it builds outward. Um, momentum can happen from that. But, but Andy, I think there's... As we talk about this, and that was a great clip, by the way. I mean, I think of two different ways that when we think about policy and to some extent, social change here. And one of them is, and this is kind of maybe in the world of Jacqueline and I, is, is engagement. I and mean, by that, I mean, we don't just write our articles and hope someone's reading them in an agency because that doesn't happen. I mean, I was a policy advisor to an Obama appointee and just no one's reading the articles. Um, so we have to find constituencies for the work that we do 
We have to make connections with them, open conversations with them, build trust with them over time so that we have a constituency for the work that can take that up. Because I used to work at the Agency for International Development. That was more than a decade ago. I, I have friends who are in there, but that doesn't mean I know everything that's going on. I don't know every internal fight, but they do. And they know what information they need to move things around. So having those relationships is one possible way of generating shifts in policy. But there's another arc here that I think we don't want to forget about. And I think that's what makes this book and these kinds of efforts really important, which is that often policy just catches up to society, right? That policy doesn't drive social change. It often reflects the change that has already happened. All you have to do is think about marriage equality, for God's sake, right? The Obama administration was relatively freaked out about really codifying marriage equality. Then Joe Biden gets up fires off a sentence in a press conference that no one had cleared and no one expected. The White House goes into, oh, my God, mode because they think they're going to get blasted for it. And nothing happened because as it happened, society, American society had already decided that wasn't that big an issue. And suddenly the White House realized, oh, wait, we could push this thing because no one's going to blow us up for it. Society had already moved. Policy caught up to society. This book is a way of thinking about moving society around mm -hmm. so that eventually policy can catch up to that. So I, I think that's why this kind of effort is as important as the work we're doing on the science side, as the work we're doing in the policy side. Because if we're not doing, frankly, if we're not pulling every lever we've got from science to activism and everything in between, we're not gonna get this done. And if we decide to get purist about it, What's the right way to do it? Y'all, we all have to be activists. We all have to be scientists. We all got to go work for the government, whatever. We're not going to get this done. I mean, we'll just end up shooting. It'll be a circular firing squad and that'll be the end of us. And we, we can't do that. We have to respect there's a lot of different roles and a lot of different ways to do stuff. And people need to decide what part of that they want to be engaged with. So I'm all for just promoting as many different ways of getting these messages out and all the different audiences we can possibly engage with. That's that's why I was really excited about this particular effort. Yeah. Rebecca, I'd love to hear from you on that, too. Um, you know, if, if you could broaden this out, if, if there's somewhere on the web where you, you could even broaden the, the, the range of voices or what would that look like? What does success look like um, maybe in, a, let's say, five or 10 years? I want to just pick up from something that Ed said, where it's not just that Biden fired off this sentence that made the Obama administration get behind marriage equality. There's a way you can tell the story where like the Supreme Court handed it down or the man, Obama administration handed it down. If you look at how absolutely homophobic this society was, you know, into the 1970s, where to be queer was to be treated as either mentally ill or criminal or both, then it's countless uh, queer people and their friends, family, allies, etc. Um, queer people who came out of the closet, who argued for their rights, who fought battles along the way, that created a reality. I often think of policy and governmental action as ratifying decisions that have already been made by society. And this is, if you understand it, um, why power often lies as well in the margins of shadows where nobody's paying attention, where people decide that black lives matter, you know, decide 200 years ago to abolish slavery, uh, you know, or that women should get the vote, decide, you know, these things that really shift consciousness. And in a sense, government ratifies what the public's, you know, like 
leaving aside the question of unpopular authoritarian regimes, ratifies what the public has already gotten behind. The public gets behind it when people lead through organizing activism ideas, whether they come from church pulpits or radio shows or writers, uh, conversations, etc. And that process fascinates and energizes me and gives me hope going. And I do think we need a vision of the future. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did that wonderful video a few years ago about, you know, that pretended, the you know, as a kind of counter narrative where the Green New Deal had passed and uh, Ocasio-Cortez had some silver in her hair like I have now. And she's just talking about like what we did. We actually have a couple pieces in the book that do the same thing. We have a wonderful piece by Marianne Hitt and who led the Beyond Coal campaign and nobody's better equipped than her to talk about, you know, how we can change the world because the Beyond Coal campaign has prevented or shut down 350 coal plants and seen this country go from 50% coal electricity generation to a pretty small percentage. And so she wrote a love letter from our clean energy future that's really about, you know, describes how we did it. And it's going to be, it's going to be some really big things like the IRA. It's going to be lots of little things like the solar on top of all the schools and the, you know, the, the diesel buses replaced by electric buses. It's going to be changing how we grow food. One of the things I find fascinating and kind of beautiful and also incredibly difficult about climate is that there isn't a solution. There's a million solutions. It's how we protect mm -hmm. forests and oceans and soil and wildlife, how we design, how we live, how we move, how we eat, how, you know, and underneath that, there have to be really radically different values and the values of, industrial, capitalist, individualism. And I think those values are also emerging. And so, you know, we can envision that future. We should spend a lot more time envisioning it. And to like speak to just one more point that came up earlier, I think the climate movement did a fantastic job along with the scientists and some journalists like you of waking people up to the fact that we're in a crisis. I feel like that job has been largely accomplished and we need to wake them up to the fact that we have solutions to the crisis and that the solutions are as urgent as the crisis. That, and Cause that's one of the really missing, one of the really absent picture, uh, sorry, sometimes I'm getting all scrambled. One of the really absent pieces of most people's picture, we have the solutions where there was a great banner in the 2014, 400,000, strong climate march in New York City that said we have the solutions. We say it in every way we can, but people don't really believe it. You see the ridiculous fuss over the fusion thing at Lawrence Livermore Labs, right. where the mainstream media framed it like, oh my God, we have an energy solution. And it's like, you idiots, we've had one, we have two called solar and wind and a bunch of other ones. They work really well. They're, you know, Texas is getting more power from them than it gets from coal. You know, like tell people about that. Although it's hard to tell people stories that aren't something that happened yesterday, but gradual shifts and increments. Mm. The reason I'm sharing this uh, selection from the book is I love this idea of uh, mus musculature. The imagination is a muscle. Uh, in other words, you have to practice these, these things. Uh, and practicing informing neighbors about uh, something you're doing uh, is is really a vital strategy as well. Getting started small. This is where I think incrementalism has gotten a bad 
bad rap. Yes, industry has co-opted the idea of individualism. But how do you build a movement? You build a movement through myriad individuals uh, convening and testing muscles, going, going to the town meeting, just listening. Uh, there's a scientist, a young woman in New York City who created a group um, just designing, it's just to get scientists, um, whatever they study, to go to their city council meeting. Mm -hmm. Just to, oh, what's the, what's the ecosystem of change where I am? And maybe what's the role I could play in that? And then practice, 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 you know, can lead to more comfort and more uh, enthusiasm. Uh, and so, and imagining, of course, the future as this really neat conversation with Adrian Marie Brown gets at is, is another thing that book gets at. Uh, I don't, we, I could talk with you all forever. I know it's, we're past our normal time. If you have a few more thoughts you want to share before uh, we end, that's fine. Um, uh, but this has been a wonderful beginning. And, and, and Rebecca, I'm really glad you could come back. You know, I did NPR in 20 minutes and hopped right back. It was, I, it's a, it's an interesting day, but yeah, I think that we have just, we're so inculcated. I don't know whether it's Christian eschatological apocalyptic culture or all the dystopian movies. And I grew up on road warrior and Terminator, et cetera, but we see so many dystopias and so few utopias and we also don't talk much about some of the ways in which things have actually gotten better and why. And, you know, if, you know, um, for women, for people of color, for queer people, for people with disabilities, for, uh, you know, that the culture has changed so profoundly in my lifetime, you know, and also around environmental awareness. And those slow stories, I think, are such an important part of understanding change, um, you know, and that it is often incremental and it can be, you know, it often for me feels like an earthquake. Pressure builds up slowly and marriage equality fits that template. Pressure builds up slowly over decades and then there's a sudden rupture yeah. and you're in a different world than you were before. And uh, so uh, getting people to understand the nature of change, the nature of power um, and things like that are as much part of the work I think of giving, creating people who can, really take action as giving them the specific facts. And Thelma and I like to say they need good facts and good frameworks. And with Not Too Late, we tried to bring both together along with 20 of the most amazing people we could possibly imagine. And it's been thrilling hanging out with two of them today. Facts and, and frameworks, I like that. I like alliteration too. <laughs> you must be a writer. <laughs> And, and a last thought from you, and then and then uh, maybe Jacqueline. And Jacqueline, um, let's finally get together. Um, I know you've had a really tough time these last few months with uh, um, health and stuff, but um, we're just down the road. So, Ed. Um, sure. I, I think very, very quickly, I think there's, and uh, I think this actually relates to what Jacqueline wrote as well as some of the other things she's communicated. There's, there's a sense of loss here right that's going on around climate I, I can talk about this all day i won't except to say that i'm living back in new england after being gone for a very long time and um the, the shock like the world i grew up in the the woods i played in as a kid it doesn't exist anymore it's gone and on one hand there's a sense of loss with that but there's also and this goes to the point people were just making a minute ago there's an empowerment that comes from that because if that's already gone 
then I'm not saving that. And I need to start thinking forward to the world I want to live in. And I want my kids to live in. And that means working that muscle of imagination and looking forward. And that really is part of the conversation that needs to change. There is still a little bit too much of the, we have to save something. But I think the thing that people think they're saving a lot of times is already gone. And that Again, you can think of that as, oh, no, we're doomed. It's over. We should quit. Or you can say, wait, if that's gone, what do I want? If I don't have to save that thing anymore, if that's not a possibility, what do I want to build? And I think that I see that as possibly empowering. And that's a chance to change some of that narrative. And I think that could be very helpful for us going forward. Yeah, and, uh, I would just add to that that you know, I, I think one of the one of the best things that we can do as in, as individuals as we as we engage in this work is to let go of binary thinking, let go letting go of the idea that climate is a pass fail process. Um, this idea, you know, we're so locked into these ideas of thresholds, points of no return, um, you know, tipping points, uh, blowing past our goals, our targets. None of that means that. That that our work on climate doesn't matter. None of that means that we are doomed to an apocalypse, right? A no harm scenario was never possible because harm has already happened, right? People have died, livelihoods have been lost, you know, homelands have been destroyed. Um, this is an ongoing process that emerges out of decades, centuries of colonialism and genocide and other processes that are deeply that you know the climate crisis is deeply rooted in and comes grows out of. Um, and so, you know, the work will always be worth it, as, as Mary Heglar says, you know, as long as you have a, a breath in your body, the, you know, the work needs you. Um, and so, you know, if you just understand that every fraction of a degree is worth fighting for, um, then that just opens up possibility, um, letting go of the fact that, you know, this might be something that we can fix, solve, you know, completely in our lifetime as though this isn't, this isn't something we will always be thinking about, always be working on. Um, I think just breaking down that idea of binaries uh, just opens up so much possibility, so much scope for imagination. And you just give yourself permission to engage in the work with so many other people who are also doing this work without any expectation of a particular outcome, um, because that work is going to be meaningful. You know, if it's especially if it's at the community scale, especially if it's at the local scale, if you're doing mutual aid, you are pushing for um, you know, stronger social networks, uh, if you're pushing for um, green infrastructure that benefits everyone, regardless of whether or not climate change was happening, as we used to say, right, getting rid of air pollution is good, even if climate change isn't real, right? Um, all of those things are still true. Um, and so building local resilience and capacity, caring for the most vulnerable, all of those things matter. Um, and there are people on the ground doing this work right now who desperately need support. They need finances, they need bodies, they need effort and brains and imagination. Um, and you, no one of us is going to fix it, all of this, right? There's there's room for everyone to, to engage right where you are right now, uh, just with the tools that you have at your disposal. And that work will always be necessary and worth it. That's just wonderful. And just going to share one little thing here before we close out, which is digital green. It's a, um, the, the, the miracle that's connecting us all today, the internet can still be, be, no matter what Elon Musk does, you can find ways to do that global, global, local connection too. So as you're, you can find people working on your problem, whether it's permaculture or um, family planning or, uh, paleoecology or the rest you can you can connect around the world now uh, 
in ways that were inconceivable. So the, that was, oh, sorry, where's, there we go. And, and that, so this project, I think, is just the beginning of a wonderful um, adventure. I'm, I'd like to help facilitate it be, being a global conversation, for example, uh, connecting uh, this project with those on the ground elsewhere who uh, might not know about it because it's in English. And or, or maybe it's being translated already. Uh, so let's see. Uh, thank you again for all being here today. Rebecca Solnit, a great author and, and thinker and activist. Um, and uh, Jacqueline Gill, my neighbor in paleoecologist, one of the best writers uh, at that translational interface between science and, and society that I know. And Ed Carr, a geographer extraordinaire. I've learned huge amounts from you and your colleagues, uh, Diana Liverman and so many others. Uh, climate science is not just about the atmosphere. It's about stuff on the ground and knowing the dynamics of societies as much as we know climate is, is vital if we want to have a smoother ride in this century. 